Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. With guest co-host... Timothy001. So how far into the broadcast before we start hearing Maki's phones fan whirring? Oh yeah, we can start like spamming over text and crap and have it turn up on the show. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> and she'd probably just mute it, but... Alright, hello internet. Welcome to episode 302 of Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. I'm Jason Mega Bears fan with your regular hosts, Dan Q. And the internet says hello to you. The me and team. Always improving. Always. Makalua. Skype on my computer says no, but Skype on my phone is fine, apparently. Okay, then. And our super special guest host, Timothy. Welcome from the Great White North. So, yep, I got another date, another update. A couple tweaks here for the uh, expansion. I don't know if I want to go through the whole list. Is there anything you feel is particularly nice to emphasize, Dan? Yes, I do. I agree. Going through the entire list is not worth our time. <laughs> yeah. You can certainly look at that over. It's linked to from Civilization.com. It's part of the Steam community. It's on Civilization Fanatic Center. It's probably also been reported by your mom at this point. Yeah. Because everyone has the patch <laughs> <laughs> so it was released on the 8th of March. It's about 80 megabytes. It was preceded by a YouTube video on the Sid Meier's Civilization official YouTube channel by franchise lead designer Ed Beach. That is how he is described in the description. That's the first time I've seen, and certainly anything official, describing him as the lead designer for the franchise, although we've pretty well known that for a few years now. Anyway, it's good to have that acknowledgement. <laughs> As always, we're keeping a close eye on our fan community to see how we can improve the Civilization VI experience. We've been very pleased by everyone's reaction to Rise and Fall, but we know that listening to your suggestions carefully will make the game even better. Some of the key areas we have chosen to address right away include the user interface and the balance of our newest systems. General updates added a new historic moment for being the second or later Civilization to discover a natural wonder, plus one era score. It's a little still... bit of less, like, immediate Dark Age, although oh. it's still not easy, but it's a little easier to avoid the classical Dark Age. And you could before, too, but this just takes a little bit of the edge off of it if you're able to explore. A little disappointed that I don't see any historic moment for building a national park, because that seems like something that deserves it. But Since they are so rare in the game. One of my pet peeves with the game is how insanely difficult it is to actually build a national park, so... That definitely warrants a historic moment in my book. I like seeing this plus one era score for being the second or later. It's similar to, for example, every single time you meet a civilization, you're getting plus one era score. Once you meet all civilizations, you will get plus three era score unless you were the first to do it and it gives you plus five. It's still going to be an historic moment for your people that you have discovered a natural wonder, even if you weren't the first to receive it. So not only is it consistent for gameplay, but it's also <laughs> realistic. Unit experience gained from fighting free cities and free city units is now capped at plus one after obtaining the unit's first promotion. Mm. Oh, no farming? Nope. Yeah, no. 
I don't think city states are capped though, so no, I don't. Not. I don't see the reasoning to cap this when city states aren't. I think one of the reasons is probably because you know there's a I don't know maybe sort of exploit where you can capture an independent city and then if oh, your loyalty is really low. Yeah, and then lose yeah. it like five turns later because you're getting like negative 15 or negative 20 loyalty per turn and then just capture it again. Well, I guess you could do it with the city state too if the loyalty's that low. But I mean, as a general rule, that wasn't applicable for city states prior to the expansion. So it might I heard city states could become see. free cities rather than city states. Yes, the, it, it is possible for the loyalty pressure to be applied to the city state and for it to become a free city, and then be absorbed by another civilization. It's rare, but it is possible, yes. Well, if you're conquering it, though, that would be less rare. Do city-states generate their own loyalty? Because I don't think I've ever seen pressure from city-states. They don't, but they can get flipped. They're generating their own loyalty. It's just that you don't have to worry about your city flipping to become part of an extended city-state empire. Because governors are like that, too, Like aside from Imani. But the other ones will generate loyalty, but putting them in your city will not cause your city to exert more pressure. There is also remove the flirtatious and carmungeon agendas. <laughs> Aww. Small bonus. Being friendly to members of the opposite sex and carmungeon was has no time for alliances with members of the opposite sex. Which was kind of always humorous. It's, it's I'm playing a civilization that has a female leader, but I'm not female. Yet this agenda has now been applied to me, question mark. Maybe it's quote-unquote realistic, because there are definitely sexists out there in the past and in the present. But I agree, that really didn't have a place in the game. I... It's yeah, uh, that's... it's pretty hard to make a case that that's realistic. Yeah, that's something that's more <laughs> appropriate leader like a, level. Yeah, that's something that's more appropriate for like a Total War or a, a Crusader Kings or, you know, Paradox game, where you're actually playing as a dynasty of specific characters rather than as the state. Especially the state over like a thousand years or more. Yeah. (laughs) The agendas really could use work because a lot of the quote unquote playstyles under the agendas amount to game throwing. Not all of them. Some of them actually have reasonable focuses that can push you toward winning a victory. And those ones are a little better. But these are just straight up dice rolls. Like we're just going to hate this person more or less regardless of real politic. Now, sometimes the other modifiers overcome that, but far too often for the AI. It just screws itself over over this kind of stuff. And it's one of those things that you, no matter what, you can't change that modifier. Yeah. A lot of the others you can, based on your game style play. Yeah, that's true. Even if the AI's behavior is throwing, the player themselves still has agency in terms of how that AI reacts with most of the others. It's true. From the general updates, the kind of big item, not only to me, but I'm certain a lot of other people who, in particular, have been playing the Rise and Fall expansion for Civilization VI, but also Civilization VI in general. We highlighted it on the last episode. It was pointed out to us in our comments on CFC in regards to episode 301. Increased defenses of early era city-states to discourage easy conquest by AI and players. I like the, and players. Yeah, that too. But especially, (laughs) oh. Generally, wasn't the players that were the big problem. The players could, though, and it was starting to become a little bit more common for players to start talking about Snipe and the city-states. I know I mentioned it, but I'm not the only one who mentioned it. As in, like, let the AI wear down the hit points and take the city, Civ IV style. Yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking about it. I've done that Uh, a couple times. Yeah. City states nearby. So I highlighted those last two changes from general updates as the big ticket items and the other ones as secondary. But I also have for general updates a question mark because it's in the patch notes. And while I'm looking for more of a description, I think this is more of a 
Well, we will see in time whether or not this is a good change, or at least good enough. Rework the way that warmongering is handled between declaration of war, capturing cities, and raising cities. But it doesn't tell us how it was reworked. And even once we figure that out, I guess we'll have to play it again to see if it's better or not. Yeah, I really hate that. Like, you cannot determine that reasonably in-game, like, even now. And that's just not a respectable decision from a design perspective. That is a rule, unlike, like, what the AI is going to do in X situation. How much penalty or bonus you get for doing X choice in a strategy game is a rule. But they really should be possible to just look in the game and clearly determine what the consequences of your action will be from a mechanical standpoint. I'm not okay with them not doing that. It never gives you numbers for warmonger penalty ever. It's always just the moderate, heavy, etc. Yeah. Actually, the game does log a hard number for your warmonger. You can find it in like a text file or some sort of file. (laughs) It's in your save. You can actually tell how much warmongering you've accrued. But for some reason, the developers don't think that that's worth including in the game anywhere. We'll just have to add that to the list of things that the game clearly takes into account and records, but doesn't make accessible to the player through the user interface. So now I would guess this addresses some of the bugs, though, with uh, warmongering. It might create new ones, but like, well, yeah, (laughs) there were certain CPs you could use where you would not get warmonger for taking AI cities. (laughs) I think it was the liberation CB or or protectorate war, something like that. Yeah, that's probably gone if they're reworking the mechanic entirely. Sarah yesterday posted on Reddit a list of everything they changed for the penalties. And their increases and decreases. For those listening, Tim, who is Sarah in this context? Sarah Darney from Firaxis. Kind of the liaison between the marketing department of Firaxis and the Civ community. Oh, yeah. Liberation War went from zero to 100. <laughs> and Protectorate War. There you go. So, yes, that, that appears to have been fixed. <laughs> Balance changes. We mentioned the polder earlier. Allow the three land tiles next to the polder to include hills. And of course, that's for the Netherlands. Added loyalty per turn to emergency target cities so that emergencies will no longer end in the members' favor without them doing anything. <laughs> that's quite nice because now you can do some aggressive plays on the capital, depending on how much. Like, I, I would love to see it say how much here, at least for normal speed and then adjusted for whatever. If that's plus 10 versus plus 2, it changes what you would do. And again, no easy way to know in advance without testing it. Plus 10 loyalty or something, you can actually uh, stuff where you can hold that city where you would otherwise not be able to hold that city. And it applies pressure. So you could actually do run buys and take a capital, trigger the emergency. Macedon no longer received boosts for conquering a free city. So <laughs> no more Eureka for each encampment or campus in the conquered city and an inspiration for each holy site or theater. Not from a free city. Nope, nope, nope. I think that's to, to avoid those chains that you were talking about earlier, uh, only with the Macedon bonus, right? Yes. So you could just repeatedly lose and retake a city for a bonus. Yeah, no more steamrolling by Macedon. Oh, I'm sure they'll still be steamrolling. It just you, you won't be able to repeatedly conquer the same city for the lulls and get the bonus. Yeah. Interesting that they do put that under balance changes, but they have the change to uh, England repeatedly capturing independent cities is listed under bug fixes. Hmm. One is intentional, one wasn't? That's interesting. I I don't know. I think there was a lot more player mm, angst toward the England thing than the Macedon thing. We should put that higher up on the list in the changes, and balance changes appear in the patch notes before bug fixes. Maybe two different people making the entries and then deciding that differently as to where it would go, yeah. 
I could see like a cross reference, you know, where it would be listed under a balance change and a bug fix. But seeing as how it's to an existing civilization and how it's interacting with the mechanics, yeah, to me it makes sense to put it in the same category or indeed same categories. But speaking of balance changes, artificial intelligence update. Garrison ranged units are much less likely to leave city centers and encampments. So again, this is a question mark to me. What does that mean? I don't just mean an absolute number. In this case, situationally, what does that mean? They would be more likely to leave the city center and encampment if there isn't an enemy unit nearby? Because that would make more sense, because then we don't have to worry about keeping in the city in order to add to the bombard capability, plus not worrying about increasing the likelihood that you're going to get your garrison range unit squashed by an enemy unit. It's better, but I don't know how much better. Well, I'm okay with this being vague, though, because it's what your competitors are opting to do in a situation. The only thing is here, like when I read it, I just raise an eyebrow because it might actually improve the quality of the AI play or it might not. I've seen the AI on many occasions have like an archer or crossbowman or whatever inside of a city. And then I roll up to invade the city and they move it outside of the city and then I kill it. And now I'm only getting one bombardment from the city itself and it becomes easy to take. So I'm I'm assuming that's what they're talking about. And it seems to be a lot better since the patch. Yeah. Under user interface updates now from the patch notes. Governor promotion buttons will now use the disabled state properly for promotions we don't have the prerequisites to earn. That's good that the user interface reflects that you know you can <laughs> make it very clear to you that no, this is not available to you yet. Yeah. Also, adding alliance icons to tech tree nodes so players know what their level 3 research alliance members are researching. Yes, thank you. Also, added tooltips for a variety of loyalty UI, and I include that as... One amongst the better changes, because the loyalty mechanic is new for all of us, regardless how long we've been playing Civilization VI, or quite frankly, as Civilization players, that that information is available as a tooltip within the UI, unlike some other things we've pointed out that currently are not. But my favorite one is perhaps, made sure we displayed the right city details for cities being seated. You know, we really do appreciate that, but really... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, wait, that's a UI update? You mean that's a bug fix, right? But, okay, fine, whatever. In many cases, they're the same thing. Fixed an issue preventing water natural wonders from appearing on huge maps. On some huge maps, you might be like, oh, well, it's a huge Pangea map, whatever. But it's a huge island plates map. Where the right... Where, yeah. Where's that? Where? Where's Galapagos? Where's all these other things that should be there? Hold on. Just the wording of this. It says it fixed an issue preventing them. It doesn't mean that they will actually appear, though. It just means that they're not prevented from appearing. Lol. <laughs> no, they just said an issue. There might still be other issues that prevent them from appearing as well, technically. They fix at minimum one issue that prevents the one they found. Natural, natural wonders from appearing. Yeah. <laughs> Either this and we're really onto something, or we're just giving them too much credit in their word choice, or lack thereof. I, I don't know which it is. Either way, it's humorous. You just like to overanalyze everything, Dan. Let me think about that for a second. I'll get back to you. No. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Fixed a bug that was causing embarked units to use their embark strength instead of their unit strength when conducting an amphibious attack. That's nice. I remember that being a major frustration when I was playing as Australia and I was trying to figure out whether or not the digger was a worthwhile unit to build. Fixed a bug causing incorrect unit maintenance costs to be incurred. Um, I want to know how long this was happening and I want compensation in my game. Yeah. Restitution even. <laughs> Restitution, dipshit. What? <laughs> Just for back. Oh, oh hey, hey, look. They claim they fixed the alert bug again. Yes, fixing a bug causing <laughs> units set to alert to be changed to fortified, preventing them from waking up when enemies are near. How many times has the alert bug been fixed, supposedly? Still not 100%. <laughs>
I mean, allegedly. How many times has it allegedly been fixed? Quite a few. <laughs> Every patch? Something like that. I think we're onto something here. They fixed a bug, not the bug, or all the bugs. They fixed a bug. That's true. <laughs> They've learned that that might not be uh, all the bugs. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh... Historic moment for recapturing a city you originally founded can now only trigger once per plot location to prevent an exploit where it could be farmed for Eriskor. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's for a city you originally founded. I don't make a habit of losing cities I originally founded if I can help it. Preserve proper number of government slots after liberating a city with a wonder that provides slots. Thank you. <laughs> and also, ensure that city-state suzerain bonuses are applied properly after you capture a city. If you're the uh, suzerain of one of those city-states that gives you, like, plus production or culture or something like that on a coastal tile, and you capture another city that's on the coast, I think what was happening was you weren't being given that bonus right away. Like, you probably had to go to the next turn or something like that before any of it was applied. Sometimes you wouldn't even get it at all. Thank you for your ongoing commitment to civilization. We couldn't make these amazing games without our passionate fans. It's like I'm in the middle of a war, and all of a sudden I'm on an encampment hex. Oh, they just finished the encampment that I'm currently parked on. Well, thank you. Yeah. (laughs) You're not forced to move off the tile. And once you move off it, it becomes a working encampment. Yeah. So you can hold it down, basically. Yeah, I think I would rather see it changed so that you're allowed to build the encampment there, but the unit that's on that tile is forced to move off because of the way that districts work like they're permanent and the placement of them matters i wouldn't want to see a situation where you cannot build your encampment in a place where it's worthwhile to build because the enemy is just standing on that tile and see i kind of look at it the opposite i think that if you've got an enemy unit that is on that hex that enemy unit is going to prevent the encampment from being completed. But that doesn't work for any other district, and I don't even think it's the case that standing on foreign terrain denies them the yield anymore the way it used to. It uh, you can still should, work though. the tile. So if, if without those rules in the game, I don't think that the encampment should be this special exception where, oh, that one district now you can't place there because of this rule. If I, it were more globally applied, I'd be okay with it, but... Yeah, I would definitely go in the globally applying. Yes. Like, you don't work tiles with enemy units. You don't build any type of building, wonder, district, anything on a hex with an enemy unit. By enemy unit, I mean a unit that is at war with you in your territory on the tile right. in question. So basically, your city can't interact with that. And that would also solve this problem because you would not be able to complete any district while a unit is standing on it because you would just have your production towards that frozen until they move off. Correct. So, yeah, I- I'd be OK with that. I'm just not OK with the encampment being the one district that works differently than everything else. I agree with you there. That's a straight up inconsistency that doesn't make a lot of sense mechanically. It's just also like being given the option to, say, repair a district that an enemy unit is still on. Well, <laughs> why? I mean, why would you do that? Yeah. Why, well, don't give the AI that option. Block that from happening. I don't, no human player who's really thinking about it is ever going to do that because, oh, please, thank, thank you for repairing it. I'm going to go ahead and pillage it again. Thanks for the added science from the campus you just repaired. But no. Well, I guess if you're expecting the war to be over or that unit to be dead by the time the repair is actually finished, because repairing does take a long time. It's not like you're doing it instantly. It depends on game speed. Yeah. What about MP exploits? You could be at war with each other, right? And you have some mines. 
and your worker just repairs the mine, then your uh, quote-unquote enemy pillages the mine, and you repair the mine, and then uh, they're doing it as well. And uh, it's a lot of science. Yes, we're definitely talking about a cooperative game here, hence the air quotes enemy (laughs) description from Phil. (laughs) You could in principle do this in an MP free-for-all, but I think you'd get kicked for it because it's (laughs) questionable. Well, that's that's straight-up collusion. Yeah. But to kind of bring it full circle to the notion of being able to complete a district, I, I just find the encampment all the more extreme. I think it should apply to all districts, but especially in an encampment, it's like, hey, guys, we're currently on this hex. The enemy is completing their encampment, which can bombard against us. Oh, bring it on. But it's also consistent to prevent that, given the fact that when you have units surrounding the city, the city is now under siege and it cannot heal during that time, right? So it, it seems like because that's in there, this just feels like something that was missed in the tuning. Governors, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So Lord Yenanek over on CFC had started a thread about all this where he was raining the governors. So start with Victor the Castellan gets only gets a C plus because he's situationally useful. It's like eh. He really emphasizes, yeah, that essentially if you get double declare of ward early and happen to have a governor promotion available. I'm not disagreeing actually with the C plus, only because he, he's definitely useful in a situation where either you've got the declaration of war and you're worried about trying to have some kind of added strength for that city, defense. Very dependent on what difficulty level you're playing the game at. Because if you're at a really high difficulty level where the AIs are just unreasonably aggressive, then he's going to be more valuable than if you're playing on like Warlord or Prince. Yeah. Even if you're somewhere in the middle, he's also useful when you have a city that's border and either you know you're going to go in there at some point... But this way, even if they attack you first, you've got him there in that city and you can fight them back while your army comes over. Yeah, especially in MP games, it might be a deterrent. I don't know if the AIs will recognize, oh, there's a governor in there that's going to make that city harder to take. I'm not going to take it yet. But other players will definitely be able to see it and, you know, could be a deterrent. At least give you some more time because they'll tell themselves, "Uh, maybe I should build more units. Yeah. He is nice situational, especially the unit buff on cities you're defending can be very nice because the AI will still attack you a lot. So if you take a city, position your units, and then uh, you're stacking oligarchy and stuff on this, it can be helpful in the early game, especially. But most of the time, other governors will give you more, but he's okay. I'm okay with the C plus grade. Essentially, because like if you're conquering a lot of cities or whatever, and you're progressing through the civics tree decently, you'll get numbers of governors available, and it could be worth just to pick him up. Yeah, I'm okay with the C plus rating in that I feel like he's like between D and B. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, depending well, on the game, there you he's go. either a D or he's a B. Yeah, I think he's closer to a B than a D. Amani the Diplomat who gets a B because he thinks she's not a bad governor, but not a great governor, and a rather awkward one. His number abilities are always useless. The AIs love to use it early, but that's not the governor he wants his first one. I have seen that. The AI almost, not always, but a lot of the time will take her, if not as their first, as their second, and stick her in the city-states. Which and rush up the, I want the suzerain bonus early, I guess. <clears throat> mm-hmm. I- I remember being very disappointed that I couldn't put her in independent cities because I was hoping to try to flip an independent oh, city. Oh, yeah. And I found that it doesn't seem like you could do that. And I was like, oh, well, now I don't really know what the heck I'm supposed to be using some of these powers for because I thought that was the use case for it, but apparently not. It's certainly one of those things where if you haven't met a city state yet, don't take her. 
Also, <laughs> she is one of the few that actually applies loyalty pressure, not, although the plus two isn't that much. You're usually better served by Growing City, so you can make a case for Magnus there instead. Yeah, I, I we'll could maybe there. see using her if someone's actively forward settling you and you want to try to flip their cities. Then, yeah, you take the thing that generates extra pressure, and that might be something that's useful early in the game. If there's really a city-state that you want to lock down as yours... And also be keeping in mind your ability to protect them, especially if you get to her final tier, which doubles the number of envoys that she has. Yeah, puppeteer. Then in, in that case, if you're really competing with and you're not worried about it being taken, then it can be useful to put a, a Manny there first to help you get those bonuses that you would be getting, of course, so long as you're not at war with them, and then to get to that point. So I think... B is good. I know he says that some of their abilities will always be useless. I don't think they would always be useless. I think her abilities are very strong, which makes her kind of almost like an A- minus to me. But yeah. because it's situational to what's going on in the game itself, it's kind of like looking for the forest for the trees. I think B and smack dead center of B, not even a B plus or a B-. minus. I think that's spot on for most of what you'll experience in the game. Another fun use that I found for her is rapidly expanding the borders of city-states, especially ones that are neighboring, you know, another player. If you want to deny tiles to them, you throw her into that city-state and then get all those nearby tiles claimed. The number of tiles that a city-state owns is a function of how many emissaries it has. Throw like half a dozen more emissaries in there and now, oh, sorry, other civilization, you wanted that iron that was two tiles away from that city-state? Well, you ain't getting it. Moksha the Cardinal, which has kind of two ratings, because in a normal game, C-, minus, but A for a religious victory, because this is his entire specialty, is making your religion grow faster and put more pressure, and so it, it, it does make sense, because he is a, a, literally a one-victory governor. As he points out, never bother him unless you want the loyalty bonus. It's kind of one of those things where, okay, I've got the other seven governors in place, and of course, six of them are in cities that I own, obviously not in Manny, because she's in a city-state. And I really don't want to move any of those other governors around for whatever reason. I really need the loyalty pressure from this new city I've built, or this new city that I've captured. Oh, let's put Moksha there. The comment about being very good for a religious victory, yes, for the patron saints, which apostles trained in the city receive one extra promotion. Mm-hmm. I think that's also well stated. It really is the one governor that is... Specialized to one victory. Really, really good. Really, really good for that one victory condition, which I guess in some respects it's fair then to say they're below average for anything else. If they're really good for that one thing, then that's what they're specializing in. And it's good that they're good for that purpose. As someone, I know not the only one on this panel that is not someone for a religious victory, or even more generally really doing anything with the religion mechanics... This is the governor that gets adopted last, which also means that he is constantly appearing in my historic timeline as being the final one that is adopted for the plus one uh, error score. There it is. I mean, just putting a governor in a city has some benefits. So having an extra one available isn't bad, especially if you have a large empire at the end game. Just putting someone there <coughs> can be nice. Having a game with Moksha in a Russian Civ with uh, Yerevan oh. and Jerusalem in is <laughs> overpowered. By far. It's my last game I just finished. I won a religious victory with Russia. Okay. Yeah, Jerusalem, where it acts as another holy site for you. And uh, Oh, yeah. Mm. It was one of those situations where it was insane. I could also maybe see this guy as being useful in a situation where there's an AI or an opponent that's steamrolling towards a religious victory, and you just need to slow them down or make sure that you keep your religion a majority in your cities. 
I can maybe see this guy being useful as well. So not just for getting a religious victory yourself, but also maybe for countering other players' potential religious victories. Yeah. And of course, if you're playing Congo, Moksha is completely useless. (laughs) Minus their loyalty pressure. Come on now. Oh, Definitely last is Congo. I kind of feel like, generally speaking, in your games, a Manny would be someone that I would be adopting somewhere between the early and, and the mid game. Moksha would probably be, you know, mid to the later game. Whereas this next one, and, and Victor is kind of question mark. It could be almost anywhere. Okay, before Moksha. Okay, I'll, I'll put it that way. But the next one, yeah, is definitely very viable for, if not the first one, then certainly no less than the second governor you would adopt. Yeah. Well, Magnus the Steward gets an A-plus rating. The poster also agrees that uh, Magnus is usually the first governor he'll appoint, and often he gets promoted before he takes the second one, because he has all sorts of things. Uh, groundbreak, which is default, which is huge. Chopping is already strong with Magnus, it becomes crazy. Yeah, plus 100% yields from plot harvests and feature removals in the city. And then you get to choose between surplus logistics or provisions. So either you get no food lost when training settlers, which, yeah, you know, that... that, that that would be great. Plus 20% growth in the city, and your trade roads ending here provide plus two food to the starting city, but the emphasis here is the plus 20% growth in your city. Uh, yeah, because that's twice the bonus that you get from the fertility rights in a religion. And even if you don't end up with a religion when you're adopting a pantheon, there's better pantheons to almost always take anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> besides, that's beside the point, but yeah. <laughs> and industrialist, he says he's have yet to see a city that will gain more than uh, two cogs from that, so he's yet to take that one. Some specific situations and maps might be worth it. Yeah, your plus one production per turn from each strategic resource in the city. Oh, strategics, yeah. It's unusual mm. to see that. Yeah. I should have one of those maps where it just decides to spam all the niter in one little section. Yeah, I've seen maps where there's like three iron adjacent to each other and stuff, or, you know, two horses within one or two tiles from each other. So, yeah. Legendary starts are like super abundant resources or something. Maybe this is worth a look. Arguably, Magnus does not need any more promoting. And in fact, a lot of calls in the community for quite the opposite. But I'd be more likely to take industrialist if it was, say, plus one production return from each mine resource. But not even necessarily strategic resources, just mine in general. For all your mines, basically? Yep. And maybe quarries? Yeah. Do you have a reason to keep quarries? It's hard, though, because he's giving you 100% bonus on those quarries. (laughs) (laughs) You're probably going to harvest those quarries, (laughs) to be fair. Because you'll get a lot more and earlier on. Yeah. But still, I would say, sure, throw quarries in there. Maybe you've got uh, a city that you've started later or something like that, and you're not so concerned about the harvesting. Yeah, so the one that everyone takes is Black Marketeer, because you can get any unit you want, even if you lack the required strategic resource. (laughs) Oh, look, I have no niter. Guess what? I can build musketmen anyway. It's kind of that extension of before with, hey, I only have one niter. Mm, That's okay. Go ahead and instruct an encampment. But yeah, I have absolutely none. And to tie into, there's a... There's a city-state that will give you a copy of the strategic resources that you have revealed but do not own, and sort of having that, which of course is very situational, this is the much better path. And there are certainly, at some points in the game, you can say you can probably get by without, say, having niter, but depending upon the map type and what's going on, you're probably going to want coal and or oil or aluminum somewhere in there. And if that happens to be your really heavy production-based city, then to be able to build those things in the city without that, and without having to spend the gold, it's very powerful. So does this mean I could build infinite nukes? Uh, theoretically. 
Okay, just checking because I got to think he's the resource. I was going through the resources in my head and going up the tech tree, and I'm going, hold up. If I don't have to have uranium in my territory and I have this guy. With the vertical integration, the city receiving production from any number of nearby industrial zones, not just the first, how many hexes is that away? Is that like half a dozen? Yeah. I think it's just bringing back that ability that got patched out because it was ridiculous. Yeah, now you have to specialize into it and plan ahead, sort of. You have to invest to get there, and it's limited to one city instead of all of your cities. Cities. So, yeah. You can have this, but you can't have it everywhere. Fair enough. All right, that brings us to Liang, the surveyor, who's a B slash A. She's map dependent. (sighs) I don't know about that. I mean, you don't pick her over Magnus normally, but... I actually usually do pick her pretty early just for that plus one builder yeah. charge, because that's yeah. Yeah. early yeah. in the game. And if you don't have very many tiles to chop or to harvest, then go with Yang instead of Magnus. Yeah, if you don't have chopping, then yeah, you could bring her out first, Steven. You're right. I have not had a chance to do it in a game of my own yet, but aquaculture, I saw someone, and basically you had a smaller island, but it's just like, let me spam fisheries everywhere where there's not reefs. That was ridiculously good. Aquaculture is very nice. I've been using that a lot. I've been much more willing now to settle on islands because of that. Yep, the fishery unique improvement can be built in the city on coastal plots. Yields plus one food and plus one food if adjacent to a sea resource. The 1-1 build charge that you get by default means that if you put that in a city that has itself decent production, then not only are you getting builders more quickly... Especially if you've got a relatively concentrated empire and you know trading in between the cities and you're getting internal trade routes and you can move those builders in place, it's kind of like, okay, I'm going to have to spend X number of turns to get it to this city. Yeah, but how many turns are you going to have to spend to build that builder in that city in the first place? Plus, you're going to get one extra build charge on top of it. So you can have one city at one point in time be kind of... Specialize in nothing but builders. Yeah, to absolutely improve your empire. Again, with plus one builder charge, that's like you are China without being China. And if you are China, then you can get five builder charges instead of four. (laughs) So one of the most move-happy governors, though. Mm -hmm. Like, a lot of her abilities encourage you to move her a lot. And yeah, you can just build builders wherever she is at the time. Well, she unlocks Um, exclusive districts. So, yeah, if you want, or not districts, but uh, improvements. So, if you want those improvements in all your cities, you got to move around. Well, she's boosting uh, the the infrastructure stuff, too. Yeah. Yeah. And the downside is I always get those at a point in the game where I've already got those districts built. So, eh. Yeah. Yeah, she does the Parks and Rec final where something similar to a golf course that you can build everywhere for everybody. So, extra (laughs) win amenity in all your cities. It's like, yeah, yeah. Not bad. Yeah, the city park if uh, adjacent to a lake or an ocean, and plus two appeal and plus one culture. But yeah, the plus one amenity. Mm. <laughs> really for Liang the Surveyor. Even if you never promote her, which admittedly I don't do that often because, okay, yeah, we can go down to uh, aquaculture or we can go down with the infrastructure, which is the plus 30% production towards city center and government plaza buildings. As you were saying, Jason, either I've already got those, or I've chopped them out, I've got decent production from mines, etc. So I'm not really concerned about that. But just that plus one builder charge early on, if need be, you can shop her around to, okay, I've developed this part of the empire. Okay, now I'm going to move Liang over here to have this city now start constructing the builders because they're closer and it's a decent production base. The fact that she's listed as a B slash A map dependent, I, I would just put her as A minus simply because... Is there a map you don't want to develop things on? I mean, seriously? The rest of it is a bit more situational, so maybe you never want a promoter, which I see could make an argument for saying, why would you say she was an A or an A plus if all you do is want to adopt her and move her around and never actually promote her and think about it? 
So really, it's not map dependent, <laughs> whether you want her or not. Yeah, I give her a solid A or an A minus. Yeah. And then there's the, the the next governor who is the one that I'm usually ping ponging back and forth between this person and Magnus. Yeah. If he's not first, then he's second. Yeah, Pingala the Educator, which is getting B plus slash A, depending on how you play and what victory condition you're working for, because obviously he's going to be a little more useful for something like science. Librarian, the default thing, boost to science and culture, which is going to scale with city size and the amount of buildings you've got. So yeah, let, let me just place him in my capital and just start building all the things. Yep, plus 20% increase in science and culture generated in the city. I do not find I promote this person very often. Although, because it says victory condition dependent, because later on there's space initiative. Yeah, we, you're on the science victory. It can give you the edge against uh, another sieve on that. Yeah, and uh, he's saying that the first first two promotions doesn't play too well with librarian because it's not enhancing that. But that middle one with the grants for double great person points, yes, please. Let me have all the scientists now. <sighs> okay, so you're getting plus 20% increase in science and culture generated by the city. The first two levels, the connoisseur and the researcher, so kind of the tier one, if we're going to count the one the, the one that you get automatically as tier zero, that's plus 20% production towards theater square buildings in the city for connoisseur and plus 20% production towards campus buildings in the city. I think that does work well with librarian, actually. Yeah, I was trying to figure that out. I'll pick him up and I'll get some other Liang and maybe Magnus. And then before I come back to him, and by that time, usually the city I've got him in, I've already built those buildings if I'm going to build them. And I don't want to move him. No, I agree. You're probably not going to want to move him. You're probably going to keep him in your capital because that's going to be your science-based city. And you want to be able to get that largest 20% increase you can possibly get. But because you're getting an increase generated by that, to me, it's not that it doesn't play well with the librarian. It plays well with the ability. It's just the timing, given the other governors that are available, Hollow Magnus, Hollow Liang, that by the time I think, okay, now that I've got this uh, another governor promotion available, it's time to go back to Pengala. Oh, I've already got the library in the city, or the library is only going to take half a dozen turns, and this is on online speed, no, six, eight turns, so I get a 20% production increase that's going to shave maybe a turn or two off. I'd much rather use that promotion for something else than one of the other governors. So it's not that it doesn't work well, as was described by the opening poster, it's just the timing isn't so fabulous. Yeah, Yeah, because that default ability is a percentage boost, you know, he's not really all that great until your city is already pretty large and generating a lot of research. So unless you're like Korea or something like that, you've got that automatic plus four, plus five, from your Seowon districts, you're going to be going for Liang or Magnus earlier because you've got to grow your cities to a point where Pingal is actually useful. It's kind of one of those with Magnus because he's a default ability is plus 100% yields from plot harvest and feature removals in the city. It depends on what your city has or what the cities that you have have in order to get that. So that's why it might be, okay, I'm probably going to go Liang because all builders trained in the city get plus one builder charge. That's going to be very nice from the very beginning, and it's an absolute value as opposed to percentage, like you're saying, Jason. Whereas by that point, by the time if Pingala is not first, it's it's kind of one of those things where, you know, I've got my capital. I've already got a governor promotion. I could put Liang in here and get all builders getting plus one build charge, but I'd actually rather be increasing, say, the science infrastructure, or I want to construct the government plaza, or I want to be building some units. I'm going to go and I'm going to found a second city, and then that city can be the one looking at some additional production that I can then put Liang in there. So I'm going to head, I'm going to adopt Pengala. I then might go Liang, 
and then possibly Magnus, or perhaps if that second city has some really good stuff for plot harvests and feature removals, then I'll do Magnus second and then Liang. The nice thing about these three is you can play around with them, and they're all really, really good in the first half of the game, or even the first third of the game, that they're really strong to be wanting to at least have them within your arsenal of governors, if we can call a collection of governors an arsenal. Ooh, sounds aggressive. And your arsenal of governors very early on. It's interesting conversation that comes out of talking about these three in particular. Not that it makes the other ones look bad, but eh, no. <laughs> Just not as exciting, I'm afraid. <laughs> All right, our last one then. Randy the Financier getting a B plus slash A. Not a reason given on that one. His number of abilities makes her useful no matter your victory condition. Those might be better in correct circumstances. I mean, mm. I'm feeling more like maybe a B minus for Reyna. The default ability, acquire new tiles in the city faster. Well, if you really want that tile right now and you can't wait for the half dozen turns, and I, I totally get the why is the city going to acquire this hex next, this flatland grassland, instead <laughs> of the one with the iron on it? Oh my gosh. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so the thing is, the game is going to pick that faster. It's just going to pick that grassland, flatland grassland tile faster. And get onto a useful tile next, hopefully. Maybe. 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 But if you buy that hex, then you know you've got that hex. So I, uh, because the land acquisition is the first one, I mean, the fact that we start going down a little farther with that, the Harbor Master and the Foreign Exchange. So Harbor Master, double adjacency bonus from commercial hubs and harbors in the city, or Foreign Exchange, plus three gold from each foreign trade route passing through the city. Yeah, that one's dependent. Yeah. Her money-generating ones are generally pretty good. It's just the issue that I have with her and with Pingala is just that default ability just doesn't seem very strong. I usually don't want to invest in them early in the game because that default ability isn't doing much, especially compared to Liang or Magnus. But the second level ones can be very good if you're building a nice trade empire, especially if you spawn like in the middle of a cluster of city states and they're all building trade units and sending them to you. Then, yeah, Reyna is awesome. I think Reyna would be more competitive if we moved her tax collector capability that's currently the middle to be one of the first options, which is plus two gold per turn from each citizen in the city. So if you've got a decently sized city, and depending upon the terrain, you could be pushing out decently sized cities. That could be the equivalent of a trade route. Yeah, I think the intent behind Reyna is to use her in like new cities, get faster tiles, but it's weird because then all the other things are things that you want in a developed city. So I, I almost feel like she's kind of like going in two different directions that kind of conflict. So if, if she had something that buffed internal trade routes, I would see her as being basically like your pioneer colonist governor where you build a new city and then you put her in it in order to grow it really quickly and then take her out and put Pingala or you know someone else in there that's going to benefit for having a really large city. If for that foreign exchange, it just said plus three gold per turn from each trade route passing through the city, whether it was foreign or domestic, that would increase the desirability of that governor and to have her earlier in the game. Double adjacency bonuses from commercial hubs and harbors in the city. The issue with that is besides the adjacency bonus itself, it's like, oh, I double the adjacency bonus from plus one to two or from plus two to four. It's I've got to construct those districts first. And I've got to get to the tech that it's going to allow me to get that. It's like, okay, I'm going to get a commercial hub of currency, but I'm not going to be at currency yet. Okay, I'm less likely to then look at Reyna 
and adopt her earlier to then take the promotion to get to that, because by the time I'm thinking of, hey, that adjacency bonus would be nice, I've already got some other combination of governors that have been promoted, and then I'm like, okay, I've already used up half a dozen promotions in the game, and now I'm going to have to use not one, not two, but three to get to that. It's just kind of, ah, too little, too late. When we look at all of the governors... I'm not handing a pink slip to any of them, but it's just a matter of, A, when you're going to get hired, and how promoted you're going to be. So, I think Bagnus and Liang and Pingala are going to be either upper or middle management. Moksha? Yeah, well. (laughs) If you like playing the religious victory, grab him. For sure. Yeah, about it, really. Over on Civilization's Fanatic Center, started by Kryzip, Kryzip, with a capital Z or Z, if you prefer. Your top three, and I have to yell that because it's in all caps, your top three most wanted gameplay changes, which someone in the thread said, first off, only three. Yeah, well, (laughs) we only have so much time. We don't have all day. Not even for Polycast. I know, I know. His three seems how he started the thread. Reason to settle cities on the coast, preferably a trade-related reason. I mm. I kind of stopped at that, and I'm like, you mean another reason to settle cities on the coast? But okay. Well, I think he means exactly on the coast, as opposed to one or two tiles away from the coast, and then just build the harbor on the coast. Well... And I, I kind of don't agree with that one. I think the way that the harbor works now is just fine. If that's what they're going for, and I can see that now that I reread that in that context, I guess the only reason right now, forget about possible future things here, Dan, is because there's a nice water-based resource that's two or three hexes out. Yeah. And if you don't settle on the coast, then you're not going to get it. Or it's pretty much the only way that you're going to reach both tiles of like the Great Barrier Reef for the... Uh... Galapagos? Yeah. Yeah, for those reasons. A second, if tourism is going to be its own yield type, then it should do something more than just deciding what moment you get a cultural win. It could affect loyalty pressure on foreign cities, perhaps, question mark? I do think that both tourism and amenity should probably factor more into loyalty than it currently does. So, yeah, I kind of agree with that. It's either the loyalty from the people that you've already got in your empire, because, well, a lot of people want to come to our civilization. They're impressed with us. That's giving us a sense of pride. And also, they kind of want to move here. They just don't want to be tourists maybe having very high tourism could actually uh, increase the growth rate of a city because you're actually having more people emigrate to that city from other countries because it's such a well-known, popular, tourism city. And a limitation on how many trade routes I can send to the same city to prevent the optimal strategy of being able to send every single trade route to the biggest and best city available. I feel like the limitation on the trade routes you can send is the limitation that you have on the trade routes to begin with. You can only have so many trade routes at a particular point in time. And I often like to send them to different civs just to get the diplomatic bonus for having a trade route with another civ. Or get an envoy with the city-state. Yeah. Because they wanted a trade route. So there's mm-hmm. reasons, but... There's a score as well now when you completely uh, trade route. Yeah, that too. Yes. If you uh, choose that as your uh, dedication. But two things. Because this said top three, it really sounded like something else that's a top Cue the Mackie and Phil Grown, and maybe Jason too, because he realizes where this is headed. I'm also doing this because you're now on the panel, Jason. So I either give you the credit or you can take the blame. I went through this list and I created a top 10 list from people in the thread. 
But I also chose those that I also felt were worthwhile pointing out because, well, I'm me. Number 10 from Casper GM. Remove religion cap. It's obsolete with new religion system when you can easily eradicate foreign religions. Otherwise, as an alternative, let us gain ownership of a religion by capturing the holy city. You know? Yes. I would like to be able to compete for a religious victory if I did not found a religion myself. That would kind of be nice. Yeah. It would improve the religion mechanic. It wouldn't address all of my standing issues with it, but it would be less about, oh, I just captured this city, it's a holy city, or it's a city in general that's now producing faith, and I think, oh, good faith for discounted towards great people, not yay faith because religion. Number nine from Technical, teach the AI to use air units and modern combat in general. Earlier ages are a lot better, but endgame combat is just face roll. Yeah. <laughs> it's getting better every patch. It is getting better every patch. I also kind of put it lower on the list because unless you're one of those advanced starts people, <clears throat> you may not get to the point in the game where you really realize how bad that still is. But as Dr. Jambo adds later in the thread, have the AI build air forces in addition to using the air force. Yeah, that helps. But what I find happens is that they'll go ahead, they will have the aerodrome, and maybe they put a biplane or two in it, but they never upgrade them, they never use them, they never add to them. Why did you construct this in the first place? You wasted a district build, derp. <sighs> Number eight, seed cities. Most people don't know what it actually does and use it thinking to do something that it doesn't. It's misleading, it's broken, either fix or remove it. It serves no purpose in the game aside from misleading players. From Braz. I mean, really, you'd get peace with that civilization. There is the option to have the seed city in it, and you can put it on the list, and the AI isn't going to blink one way or another. But other than that, it's just, well, what's the point? Why do I really care? Supremacy King at number seven. Allow catapults and other siege weapons to be escorted by melee units. Mm. Because they're separate units, having them on the same hex is what I associate with being an escort. But maybe there's a situation where you want it to be that these two units need to move in tandem, whether they're side by side or one in front or one in behind. So if there was an escort way to ensure that they were kept together so that not only that you remembered, but it would also reduce some clicks on your turns and increase your turn time, but also allow you to organize things a little better. That would be all right. I would like that. Or just make siege weapons have higher defense, make them not so vulnerable to bombardment from the city so they don't die in two hits before you can get a chance to fire them. Yeah, that's my problem with them. They're designed to counter cities, and they don't really do a good job of that because they get shot to death by the cities. Right, and if you've just... got a city with walls and it has a ranged unit in it or a siege unit of its own, I mean, your own siege unit is dead before it even gets a chance to fire, so you basically have to show up with, like, two or three or four of them and know that one or two of them are basically just cannon fodder. And they're weird, too, because they're really good once you have promotions on them, but they're pretty hard to get to that point. Yeah, You'd almost need another unit arm. class or something? I mean, because we have support units that could be escorted escorted right now so if you had uh, another unit put siege weapons in their own unit class where they can be escorted like that again i think they just need to be able to defend themselves better it would also help if there were more upgrades so you didn't have to wait two whole eras before you got an upgrade to your catapult so that it would actually remain more on par with the bombardment strength of the city because there are periods of the game where i find just siege weapons are just completely unusable because they get pulverized by city bombardment and then you get the upgrade, and it's like now they're invincible for a small period of time. Number six from Zuzgon. The spy mechanism needs to be reworked. It's boring and tedious. Yes. I do like all the passive intrigue stuff, though. That's actually more interesting to me than the actual using the spies. I, so I wish there was a better UI for 
getting the passive information stuff instead of filling half the screen with all those annoying little notification pop-ups that disappear in two seconds. It's better than it was in Civilization V. Not saying much. <laughs> I'm not saying I would want to see a return of what it was in Civilization Four, but it was better in Civilization Four. The one thing that I do really like about spies in Civ Six compared to Civ Five is that you actually have to build them. You have to invest in espionage in this game rather than them just being given to you for free when you advance to a new era. Which is good, because then you're not taking it as for granted, but then at the same time, once you can do that, I mean, it's nice to have maybe have one or two sit them in a city for visibility, so you have an idea if you're at war with them or about to declare war with them, what units are in there and where they're positioned, etc. But yeah, a lot of beyond that is there really isn't much to get you too excited about it. It's like, oh, hey, I got a few hundred gold. Yeah. And by the time you can get that few hundred gold, it's kind of, well, I'm making that in a couple of turns anyway. So, and then there's the possibility they're going to get captured and then there's going to be the negative diplomacy. The one thing that is nice about the spy mechanism is when the AI is using it and they get captured and the AI spends way too much money to get their spy back. Uh, yeah, I do like <laughs> that you can trade them back to the other players. That's a very nice feature. <laughs> but I think my biggest complaint with the way that spies work right now is that I feel like I can never use them because I have to put them in my own cities to stop every other Civ from sabotaging me. So I really wish that we would have like police stations or something like that back where we could actually build infrastructure in our city or have more social policies or something like that that make it so that you can actually send your spies out to other civs to actually do things and not feel like you're constantly having your entire treasury plundered. Well, I don't have my treasury fill up too much as I'm turning around and I'm spending that gold. So even if they are successful against me with that, you know, it takes X number of turns for them in order to be able to accomplish that. Eventually, they're going to get caught or they're going to get killed. Well, I personally don't feel the need to have them serve as counter spies. The active missions are very situational. Maybe I want to put a spy in there and sabotage a spaceport because I'm not going to be able to go and take your cities before it looks like you're going to win a space race. That's nice, but I would like once the spies are introduced to be something that you're actively thinking about, like the governor system. Yeah. From Connor BB, make great people capturable. Excluding great generals and great admirals who can be killed if not protected. <laughs> 6A, the uh, AI needs to know to protect its civilian units then. <laughs> this worker's just going to go on exploration of the whole world. Don't mind him. Yeah, th fix that issue first, and then we'll talk about great people maybe being capturable. I still think we should be talking about making great people capturable, but yes, there is that too. Just like in having the AI, can you consistently escort your settler, please? Especially when I'm at war with you. <sighs> or you're going right by my borders? I mean, seriously? Is this a trick? Why? Oasis. I would like to see free cities become more than just recolored barbarians. They're also too exploitable and an easy way to waste your enemy's energies. Just the more than recolored barbarians, similar to what we were talking about, I think, on the last episode, about free cities. Yes, it seems like an unnecessary stopgap. Refer to episode 301. As for number three, this has been addressed in a very small part, but I think this is a, a much bigger point about revisit some of the silly agendas. Harold not liking you for not having ships when you are landlocked, etc. Some of it is about the agenda itself, and the other time is about the triggering of said agendas. Either way, we're revisiting these agendas. Like Congo. Founded a religion one turn ago? Why haven't you spread it to me? <laughs> <laughs> why you know war. spread? Yeah, why you know spread? You're on the other side of the planet. You don't even have enough faith to even pop out a missionary yet. 
but I yeah. want you to have missionaries in my cities right now. What it now? I just declared peace with Macedon next turn. Hey, I wouldn't want to meet you in battle because, you know, you fight for your people. Yeah, I was just fighting you. Why are you happy? But what? You're weird. Fixing diplomacy triggers. This is from Sancho Panda. For example, I have a few hundred gold per turn, spend all of it, and the next turn the AI denounced me for being poor. <laughs> the AI settles next to my borders and warns me because the troops in my territory are at their borders. That's actually a fantastic one. They forward settle me, and then you tell me, oh, like what? Or yeah. worse yet, you actually have open borders with them, and then they still fuck you with that. Or you had open borders last turn, and the open borders ended, and all your units got kicked out to adjacent to their territory, and then they complain about you having an army at their borders. Number one for me from Sifan159, Barbarian Activity Levels. This is, I know it's semi-controversial within the Turncast group whether or not to enable Barbarians in our particular game, but my issue is when the Barbarians appear and their strength, particularly if they have horse-based units. Someone's like, hey, and just go and get rid of the camps. Yeah, but when they appear so quickly, and they're so close to my borders, and there's so many of them, I'm the one that's experiencing this. Pretty sure most of the other civilizations on the map are also not experiencing it, so not only am I playing whack-a-mole with the barbarians, the other civs are going that much farther ahead of me, and it just seems like, oh, I just happened to spawn, and then they just happened to spawn, and I just got luck screwed more than once. It doesn't feel like I'm really making a decision one way or another, and I can't minimize the barbarian level, so I gotta turn around and disable them. And why, oh why, oh why, is there not a clickable notification for when a new barbarian camp spawns? You get the little audio cue, and then you have to search the whole friggin' map trying to find which tile that stupid outpost spawned on. Just make it a clickable notification, so I click on it, and it takes me to that tile. Yeah, no kidding. And if you're going to give the player that notification at all, yes, just let us find it without. That's that's been driving out. me nuts since day one of Civ Six Vanilla release. Completely unnecessary. So yeah, I mean, it's great that you can almost certainly avoid being in a dark age going into the classical era if you have barbarians on. If you're successful in getting rid of barbarian camps, that's true. It's great for the era score, but that still doesn't address their activity level, the timing and the location, and because of that, the ability to respond in a way other than to rage. I think I have yet to be not in a golden age in the classical era because of barbarians. Assuming you get to that point in the game and haven't rage quit because you're getting schmucked. Or maybe you do after you get the golden age anyway, because it's like, wow. Well, they are pretty dependent on, like, that's a huge source of era score. Support the ongoing Polycast Patreon campaign. Collective achievements. Personal incentives. Month-to-month commitment. For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon. Call in today. today. In North America, the number is 301-637-7659. That's 301-637-POLY. In Europe, 44-121-288. 7659. That's 44121288 Polly. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. For more information on Polycast, our sibling shows Modcast, Revcast, and Turncast, or about Polycast in general, log on to the series official website at thepolycast.net. 
And with that, we will wrap up Polycast episode number 302. This has been Timothy001, along with regular co-hosts, Dan Q. I have all of your bonuses. Makalua. They tried to make a Siri version of me. You might get sick of it after a while, I'm just saying. The me and team. Have a good one, everybody. And Mega Bear's warnings are difficult. Record date March 10th, 2018. Sid Meier's Civilization VI Rise and Fall Clips, copyright 2K Games. Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.